Hey, and welcome to Bread. We're an open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church meeting in Los Angeles. This talk is from a current series on the book of Revelation that we've titled, The End of Fear. We hope it serves you well. We're sort of at the end of our series on Revelation, if you've been tracking along with us. And as Rao um, spoke about last week, the culmination of Revelation, and indeed, actually, the whole sort of narrative arc of the Bible is this glorious vision of what the world will be like once God gets it just like he wants it to be. It's a new heaven and a new earth. The old has gone, and God will dwell amongst his people. They will be his. He will be theirs. And there will be no more death and no more mourning, no more crying and no more pain. This is really where the whole story of the Bible is heading, from creation to fall, to Abraham, to Moses, to David, to Jesus, to the pouring out of the Spirit on all flesh, young and old, men and women, sons and daughters, rich and poor. These final two chapters of Revelation, Revelation 21 and 22, is where all of history is converging, and it will be glorious. So, as we conclude this series, I want to home in on one particular detail of what this heaven is like. We've talked about uh, the nature of heaven. We've talked about the nature of um, uh, Jesus' victory as a lamb, as the selfless lamb destroying the powers of imperial force wherever they are. But this is the detail I want to home in on today. What are the people of heaven like? What are they like? Let me read uh, this from the final chapter, 22, um, beginning at verse 1. So he's already seen, uh, John has already seen what um, the city of God is going to be like. Not up off in the sky, but coming down here to earth. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, following from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Foreheads as posh British people say, which is me. They will, there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So, what are the people of heaven like? Well, firstly, there's a lot of them. Uh, in the NIV translation, which is uh, from that, they have these little subheadings above different sections in the Bible. If you've ever read through the Bible, you've seen that. Uh, and these actually aren't in the original Greek. They're kind of put there to try and help. And sometimes they're helpful and sometimes they're unhelpful. The one above this section says the restoration of Eden, which is both helpful and unhelpful, which is what I will come on to. It's unhelpful because Eden was a garden, but we're not going back to a garden. The new heaven and the new earth is going to be, verse 2, like a city with a great street down the middle, Sunset Boulevard, winding its way through this urban metropolis. I'm not sure whether the Viper Room will make it. A reference there for people born 
before 1990. Most of you looking blank. Anyway, it's not going to be there, but this great street down this full, glorious city. This is important because a garden, by its nature, is full of plants and vegetable, vegetable life. A city, by its very nature, is full of people. The word city comes from the Latin civis, which means citizen. Cities are where citizens gather and belong. So cities are full of people. Last week, I went to Running Springs, uh, which is between Big Bear and uh, Lake Arrowhead. It was like a 36-hour retreat for me, uh, just by myself. There was like a phone lockbox in my cabin. I put it away. I grilled the largest steak you have ever seen on a fire pit outside by myself, and it was great. I didn't hear or barely see anyone for 36 hours, and the sun was shining, there was still snow, the trees were beautiful, the sound of silence was slightly deafening and unnerving to start with, but it was great. And I relaxed, and I breathed in the fresh air, and I went, this is beauty. And we all, don't we, need to get out of the city from time to time. But here's the thing. In God's heaven, as beautiful as all those God-created things are, trees and sunshine and beauty of mountains and rivers, none of them, in God's eyes, are as beautiful as the image of God as a human being. None of them can hold a candle to the beauty of you and me. After five days of creation, God looks at what he's made and he says it's good, but it's only after he's created Adam and Eve that he looks at it and he goes, it's very good. It is excellent. It is perfect. Nothing more is needed because human beings are really the pinnacle of creation. They're what he is interested in. So God's heaven is a city, not a garden, because a city is jam-packed full of images of God. You and me and everyone else. But what's striking about this heavenly city is that it's also a garden city. And here is where the restoration of Eden heading is actually helpful because it's not a concrete jungle of pollution and oppression. There is a river as clear as crystal winding its way through it. I was on the um, corner of Riverside and Los Feliz coming out of the park. And if you know that junction, there is a kind of red filter. You're not allowed to turn right unless um, the filter says you can. And there's also a crosswalk there. But the problem is, as you approach this, it's on a bit of a hill. So unless you are the first car, you can't see if anyone is crossing there. And anyway, I was there, and the, first car, the filter goes, the first car doesn't move, and then someone holds down their horn in the most aggressive, angry fashion, just all the time. And the first car still doesn't move. Other cars behind them also start horning, horning, honking. That's something completely different. Uh, they start honking. I don't even know what that is. Anyway, they start honking. And then the first car still not moving. And then finally, it becomes clear, the reason the car's not moving is tiny little old granny, like something from a made-up story, is pushing a little car across. And suddenly, I thought, I'd better stop honking. <laughs> 
And then I felt a little bit ashamed, slightly embarrassed, really hoping no one recognizes me. It was, I was tired, it was rush hour, I was in, you know. The city of God doesn't have all the aggression and anger and frustration in it because it's a garden city. It flows with a crystal clear river. It has trees of life. It is restful and peaceful, but it does have all the good of the city and none of the bad. It has all the diversity of people, all the culture, all the art, all the intelligence, all the science, all the things that are burning in you, the stories, the creativity, because God's heaven is full of people in his garden city. Now, obviously, and we've said this throughout, the language of Revelation is symbolic. And this picture of a city is symbolic. But it's always symbolic of something true. And what is true is that God's ideal for his creation, when he has it exactly as he wants it, is one of city building, where humans live with one another and flourish. So, given that we live in a city, let us not despise this city. It's easy to do so, isn't it? And particularly, let us not despise its people. I think it might be even easier to do that. There's some odd people in here, isn't there? I mean, not in this room. I mean, there might be in this room. I mean, in this city. Because this is the beginnings of what heaven is going to look like. So let us love the people of this city. Let us work for the good of this city. Let us see it flourish. So what are the people of heaven like? Well, firstly, there's a lot of them. Secondly, they aren't just future people. They are also present pe people. Jesus, on his sermon, uh, during the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, says, You're the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And uh, in Philippians 3.20, Paul describes us as being citizens of heaven right now. We are a city, and our citizenship is in heaven. It is present. This is the already of God's kingdom. Heaven isn't somewhere we fly off to when we die. Heaven, according to Jesus, is already here because he's already here. It is within our grasp, he says. You've just got to reach out and grab it. And you reach out and grab it by acknowledging that he is the king of his kingdom of heaven. And it floods in the more we do that. The more we say, Jesus, your Lord, may your kingdom come right here, right now. Which means, all that I'm going to say about heavenly people in this talk refers not just to you and me in the future, in fullness, but also to you and me in the present, right here, right now. Having chosen to follow Jesus, this can be you, all that I'm about to say, because it already is you. So what are you like? You're a priest. Verse 4. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, foreheads, that doesn't translate, does it? I'll just leave it. So, in Exodus, there is a whole chapter detailing 
what the high priest would wear. There are chains of pure gold. There are some proper 80s shoulder pads. There are some pomegranates. Don't worry about the pomegranates. They all have particular significance for various things. But on the center of the high priest's headdress, he has a gold plaque which is inscribed with this, holy to the Lord. The high priest is the only one who had this, the name of God right there on his forehead. And once a year, the high priest was allowed in the Holy of Holies, that place where God's presence dwelt. But in order to go into the Holy of Holies once a year, there was a big billow of smoke in case he might actually catch a glimpse of God and be struck down dead. In fact, he had a rope tied around his ankle so that when he went in, if, as people were thinking, he's probably going to die in the presence of God, we can pull him out without ourselves dying. But now, because the Lamb of God Jesus Christ has won. There is no dividing line between God and humankind. Everyone gets to see his face. Everyone has God's name written on their forehead. Everyone gets to wear the pomegranates and the shoulder pads, metaphorically or, if that's your thing, literally. Ultimately, what it means is that everyone gets to be a worshipper of the true God to walk straight in the presence of God. I agree with Ben. Worship was wonderful. Worship, when we're actually worshiping the true God rather than singing some sort of crossover song that people hope goes really well on the secular radio, when we're actually worshiping God in truth, in spirit, this is where we taste heaven. This is what we're made for. We can all walk into the presence of God and meet him. We can all worship him. The question always, though, is do we actually want to? As we've said before, the thing about worship, real worship, is it's pretty confrontational. It exposes a couple of fundamental things about us. Firstly, do we actually really want to give God glory? Do we actually want to lay our lives before him? Now, of course, we're always a bit mixed in our motives, but even with our mixed motives, do we want to even in part say, God, you're in charge, you're the God, I'm not the God, let your will be done, I worship you, I acknowledge that you're bigger than me, more powerful than me, and we take our eyes off our kind of self-related selves. Do we actually want to do that? I know quite often I do not quite like myself. Secondly, it exposes the opposite but equally problematic issue. Do we think we're worthy? Look at me. Look at my awful life. Look at what I've done. How on earth could I walk into the presence of the living God and have him look at me? Surely he wants to cast me out because I am so terrible. Wallow, wallow, wallow in my awfulness. But perhaps we could just, one, admit that we're actually not that brilliant at running our own lives. 
however much we're tempted to think of it from time to time. And that we could just admit that we would be better off saying, okay, God, you are bigger than me. You're in charge. I bow down. I worship you. And perhaps we could also admit, secondly, that, yes, we're not always the people that we aspire to be. We don't do the things we wish we had. We carry around some of the stuff that we really, really regret with us. And that our lives now and again can be a bit of a mess, quite frankly. But perhaps we could just acknowledge that Jesus is saying, I know. I do know exactly what you're like. But that's never, ever, ever going to stop me loving you. That's never, ever going to stop me wanting to be with you. That's never, ever going to stop me welcoming you back to myself so that I can wash and clean and lift you up because such is my love for you. Worship is a restoration of Eden where Adam and Eve walked through the garden with God and when we worship, we experience what life was always supposed to be like. God's nearness and his kindness, his majesty, his holiness, his total otherness, his great power. This is where we find our home and we are desperate without it. So, as priests, we're worshippers and we're also prophetic. In the previous chapter, John has described the city's dimensions. Let me read this to you. This is Revelation 21:16. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod, this is an angel that he sees, uh, and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. 12,000 stadia long, 12,000 stadia high, 12,000 stadia wide. A stadia is, uh, that's approximately 15,000 miles. Sorry, 1,500 miles. The city is a big cube. Here is an artist's impression of what it looks like. No expense spared. For some reason, this heavenly city has been plonked right on the middle of the United States of America. I'll let you hypothesize why. I actually got this picture from Reddit, and um, what I was interested in was some of the comments afterwards. One of the comments was this, that we Christians get a heavenly city which is basically only slightly bigger than most countries and slightly smaller than other countries of the world. And also, it's a cube, so it's highly impractical. In the Muslim faith, the smallest depiction of what heaven is like in the Quran is that it will be ten times the size of the whole universe. That's the actual smallest one. Dude, I know what I'm converting to. <laughs> Just to be clear, this is symbolic. I don't think we're literally going to a big yellow cube made out of post-it notes. God's actual heaven is, of course, bigger than any of us could ever comprehend, certainly infinitely bigger than any could write about. The cube is symbolic, but again, it's symbolic of something real. The 12 of the 12,000 stadia represents the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, shorthand for saying all of God's people will be there. But also, 12,000 stadia was the distance between Jerusalem and Rome. 
and 12,000 by 12,000 stadia was almost exactly the whole landmass of the known world, the Roman Empire. And so what this vision is saying, therefore, is that ungodly empire, whether it's Roman or Babylonian or British or American or any other one that you want to name, all of them, past, present, and future, will be consumed by the empire of Jesus. Because what those empires represent is all that is ungodly about the city, including this city. All its violence and aggression and oppression and me first, and I'm competing with you, so if I don't bury you first, you'll bury me, so I better bury you first so that I'm safe. All the, just compromise here, just cheat here, just be taken advantage of here, and then all the money and the fame and the success and whatever will be yours. All the more powerful when we're so hidden and blurred with good business sense or wisdom or art or opportunity so we let ourselves be influenced by the imperial city rather than the Jesus city. I was having coffee with someone this week. Uh, she's an actor. And she was saying that she'd been asked to play a number of teenage characters for some TV shows. But all of them required uh, some, uh, for her to, to do nudity as a teenage character. She refused. Now, I'm not going to get all moralist uh, on you guys, but hopefully we can all agree that the mainstream acceptance and of sort of glamorized and fetishized sexualization of innocence has no part in God's plan for the creation of the world. But guess what? She didn't get the parts. And guess what? Because this happened more than once, her management then dropped her. And guess what? It's been really tough professionally for her since. The cost has been huge. But do you know what? Jesus and the whole company of heaven rejoice over her. Because her stance is a prophetic act. Her stance is resistance to Rome. This is resistance to empire. She is declaring by that act that there is a better city. One where there will no longer be any curse. And it's that city which she belongs to and everyone is welcome to join. The curse from Genesis represents humans trying to compete and destroy one another. It's toil and heartache and compromise and me first. But we are priests. This is our calling, to speak a better word, to witness to a better city, to speak truth to power out there and in the church too. Because ultimately, Jesus' truth sets people free. One of my uh, favorite recent memories, moments, in this church's life happened actually just a couple of weeks ago. Hannah was talking about the real meaty kind of stuff of Revelation 666, the beast, you know, all the good stuff. And uh, she talked about um, how she'd Googled what people thought the beast represented. And good old Christian internet went into overdrive, offered up 
well, the beast is women's liberation, it's every democratic president ever, it's 5G. And people laughed. But I know um, for some, none of this is actually much of a laughing matter. Such is the fear that they have grown up with concerning these things. One person told me after the service that they, uh, since childhood, had found it very difficult to sleep with their hand outside of the covers for fear of sort of being branded with the 666. I said to her, that duvet is not going to protect you. It's not a laughing matter. But my favorite moment anyway, in the life of this church was then Hannah saying, there are many things in the Bible that are contentious. Great minds differ about them. They've differed about them for centuries. They probably will differ about them for a long time. But the nature of the beast in Revelation is not one of them. Every single serious biblical scholar is in agreement. The beast refers to Imperial Rome, and 666 is a code for Emperor Nero. And what happened when she said that, and this was my favorite moment, was there was like this almost audible, universal sigh of relief. Thank God. Thank Jesus. It was like, in that moment... Years of fear and anxiety, years of the effects of deficient teaching, of being scared of God, of being petrified of what might happen in the future. All of that was robbed of its power as the truth was spoken. This is the power of the truth of Jesus. This is what preaching good news sounds like. It sounds like an audible sigh of relief because it's good news always. This is what we have. You are a priest. So go and set people free with the good news of Jesus. And finally, we're not just worshippers, we're not just prophets and bringers of good news, we are also rulers. Verse 5 and they will reign forever and ever. What do I mean by ruling? Not what culture and perhaps some strange teaching surrounding the book of Revelation would have you be. This is not, I'm sorry to say, about pulverizing the infidels or grabbing our guns and slaying the enemies. Ruling what you and I are called to do as people of heaven, as people of Jesus, is actually what Adam and Eve were supposed to do at the start. Now, the Sunday school experience that many grow up with is uh, that humankind was a sort of a, um, created as God's plaything. He was a bit bored. He'd been around for eternity, twiddling his thumbs. He thought, I need some people to play with, and he created Barbie and Ken. Or worse, that we were created as his servants. He's got a bit of an ego complex. He needed some people to boss around, and so he created humankind. Or even worse, that he just wanted some obedient children to do what he told them to do. That he's essentially a sort of demanding parent. But actually, humanity was created by God to manifest himself in and through. The Hebrew word for image the one used to describe Adam and Eve in Genesis is tselem. 
It literally actually means idol. It's the same word used for idol throughout the Bible. Because you and I were created not just as the pinnacle of creation, but also, in fact, as God's idols, his images, his representatives on earth. Throughout the Old Testament, famously, idols are forbidden. Thou shalt not make any graven images, makes it into the top three of the top ten commandments. But God doesn't say, don't make any idols because we don't need them. He says, don't make any idols because we've already got them. You are them. You are God's vice regent. To be an idol is to be the very essence of God. So in this sense, Adam and Eve, you and me, all of humankind, were created divine. We are God's little emissaries on earth, not equal, but nevertheless like him, divine immortals. And being like him, we are supposed to reign with him. Consider what was outside the Garden of Eden. Ever thought about this? What was there? A chaotic void. And God's command to Adam and Eve is go out into the chaos, into the ungodliness, into the uncreatedness, and create with me. Name the animals, subdue it, bring order and beauty and art and goodness to it. Go out there, be like me, with me, and create it all. You've seen what it's like in Eden, now go. That chaos, that ungodliness, seeps all around us. But in God's new heaven, he calls us to create with him, to reign with him, and bring order and goodness and beauty to it. So every time we participate in the work of God's kingdom, when we, with heaven, glorify Jesus, when we preach the good news of his kingdom, when we, in the Spirit's power, speak truth to power, heal the sick, set captives free, we reign as we are supposed to. We are no longer turned in on ourselves, self-related, self-obsessed, self-defining. We are the heavenly people we were always supposed to be. This is what we're all called to do. I think deep down we sense it. We sense that there is something more for us to be doing. That there is goodness that we were created to bring. That there are, as Paul puts it, specific things God has ordained you, just you, no one else, you, individually, to do before all time. He gave you purpose in this world. What I am excited about when it comes to church is people grasping the opportunity to build the beautiful city of heaven right here, right now in God's power to see what it could become. You will have dreams that no one else has. You will be able to do things that no one else has. I really wish I was good at healing people. I'm not particularly, I try, I try a lot. I have, in God's power, healed some people. But there are some people here who are just brilliant at it. You might not even know it. You might not even believe in the gift of healing. But let me tell you, Jesus believes in the gift of healing, and you may have it. He may want to give it to you even more, and you may be able to 
Put, place your hands on people, see their condition, and command it out in the name of Jesus because that's the gift that he's given you. Other people are prophetic. They can speak truth to power. What's amazing is seeing Hannah, actually, she's such a badass, my wife, in the best ways. But do you know how many, particularly women, she has helped? And it's not just because she's a woman. It's because she does not care for the bullshit of women are in any way second class in God's kingdom because they're not. And she has released people to go to believe in themselves in the way that God believes in you. To preach and to speak. To lead. You know, a leader is just a leader. Who cares what's between their legs? My mum watches these. Hi, mum. Yeah, stick to the script. Always stick to the script. Okay, let's end here. Um, I was talking with someone recently. They weren't having a great time uh, professionally. Uh, this person was also an actor. Work had been very tough for them. And we talked about strategies for staying positive. Uh, how to pray about uh, these sorts of things. And I've, I've got to say, I've had this conversation with lots of people in lots of different industries through the time I've been doing this. At one point, this person asked me whether they should carry on doing what they're doing. Was this what they were supposed to be doing with their life? Why would they be so in love with this thing when actually it's not really happening? Uh, and these are questions I've also had with uh, my own life at times. I'm sure you have too. Now, the truth is, I don't know whether this person has been called by God to be an actor. I don't know. I just don't know. Uh, I know someone, personally, who has sold millions, and I mean millions, of albums. I know a number of people who have made millions, millions and millions and millions of dollars. I do not know whether God has called those people to do those things. I don't know. What I do know beyond a shadow of a doubt, is that for every single one of us, God has called us to be people of his kingdom of heaven. Which means both enjoying all the fruits of heaven now for ourselves, but also working with him to extend his heaven to a world in desperate need. So my advice to all of us is to seek first the kingdom of God, because that's Jesus' advice. Seek first his kingdom and see what else happens. Success, in God's eyes, is always just doing that, following the Spirit, follow the Spirit, seek the kingdom. No more, no less. Any other definition of success is by nature deficient. It will not bring us the rewards we're looking for. Seeking God's kingdom on the other hand, always brings peace and satisfaction and fulfillment and life because it's what you were created to do. So use your gifts. If you don't know your gifts, ask God to show you what is your passion? What are you most excited about? It's almost certainly what God has placed within you. So believe that he actually wants that for you and use it to bring about a glorious garden city of heaven. Do you know there's a plan uh, just on the 101? Where's the 101? Yeah, just behind me. There's a plan to um, put a whole garden over the top of it 
all the way down to uh, Western, maybe further, all the way up to Franklin, to just cover it with a beautiful park. Wouldn't that be beautiful? I want to buy this building, and I want to turn it into a um, huge uh, affordable housing garden on the top. I shouldn't be saying this. Hannah's going mental. Uh, to, to convert it into this beautiful place with affordable housing, a community center, free uh, medical clinic, underground parking, because we need parking. I've been thinking about this. I don't know how to do that. God does. Other people do. There's a lot of architects that come to this church. It's so weird. God's preparing them to work pro bono. And that money, Ben. And that money. Let's think big about the kingdom of God. But first of all, let us not do two things, and I'll end with this. One, and I'm, I'm hopefully this won't be too much of a problem. We're not here waiting to escape the earth, to fly off to heaven somewhere. It's got no biblical basis for it at all. Heaven is coming here. But let us not make the opposite mistake of thinking it's all down to us to create God's kingdom. We cannot. It is not on us. We can pray for it. But ultimately, it's already here and it will happen with or without, without us because he will do it. So let us follow him. Let us be filled with his spirit because without his spirit, we're just fiddling around in our own strength. With his spirit, you can do extraordinary things. Don't you want to do extraordinary things? Don't you want to be used? Don't you want to get to the end of your life? I'm getting old now. I think about death. And get to the end of your life and go, well, look at that. Look what I did. I had a six-pack for all my life. Wow. <laughs> Honestly, what a waste of time. I'm sorry. But what a waste of time. Uh, don't you want to change people's lives? I'm just saying that because I've never had one and I never will. And I'm jealous of all of you who do. Uh, right, we've gone on too long. Should we stand? The story of the whole Bible is God using weak things, things that don't think they're up to much. Moses, who can't even speak. Gideon, who's the least of his tribe. Paul, who's a persecutor of Christians. Peter, who gets it all wrong. Those are the ones Jesus loves to fill with his power and his presence because then no one is in any doubt who's doing the work. So whoever you are, would you like to open yourself to being used by the living God. Shall we all just agree we're going to leave behind all the trappings of the imperial city? All the things that shine but are empty. 
and go for Jesus and his kingdom. And then be filled with the Spirit.